0: bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's potter's field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts as we unravel A secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here's our host, investigative history writer, Michael T. Keene.
1: Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene. And we are Talking Heart Island. Today's episode is brought to us by Historic Palmyra, located in Palmyra, New York. Five museums, one destination in the heart of Erie Canal Country. And the Sodus Bay Lighthouse Museum and Historical Society. They are located in Sodus Bay, New York, on the shores of Lake Ontario. And one other quick thing before we begin, we've been asked how you can listen to previous episodes of the Talking Heart Island podcast, and you may do so uh, simply by logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. Leonard Melfi was revered by his peers as one of the most respected and creative playwrights of his generation. He is mostly associated with the offbeat La Mama Experimental Theater Club on East 4th Street in New York's East Village, which produced 22 of his plays. His artistic collaborations involved other well-known pioneers in the new experimental theater movement, including Tom O'Porgan, who produced Melfi's best-known play, Birdbath, in 1965 and Kevin O'Connor, who directed Melfi's Niagara Falls in 1967. The major characters in his plays were mostly social outcasts with mysterious secrets. Melfi had struggled with alcoholism for most of his life, and at one point in early 2001 was renting a single room in New York City. His niece became concerned enough to call paramedics to the hotel who entered Melfi's room and found him in cardiac distress. He was taken by ambulance to Mount Sinai Hospital, the closest medical facility. He died four hours later in the emergency room of congestive heart failure. It was eventually reported that his body was misplaced by hospital staff, and he ended up being buried in a mass grave on Hart Island. In reviewing Melfi's life and work, I'm just extremely pleased to have as our guest today Edward Berkeley, who is a faculty member at the Juilliard School and founding artistic director of the Willow Cabin Theater Company and director of the Aspen Opera Theater Center. He teaches Shakespeare at both the Circle in the Square Theater School and Pace University. He has directed the New York premiere of plays by many preeminent playwrights, including Tennessee Williams, Terrence McNally, and Leonard Melfi. And uh, Mr. Berkeley, thank you very much for agreeing to uh, share your thoughts on the life and career of Leonard Melfi. How are you doing this morning?
2: I'm I'm great. It's great to be talking about Leonard.
1: Good. Well. I guess maybe the question then that comes to mind is why, how did you first meet uh,
2: Leonard Melfi? I was, um, I, tell me if this is too long winded and I can cut it shorter or whatever you would like. I, I was part of a movement that uh, in an off broad, off off Broadway movement and was part of the founding of a group called the shade company. There was a small loft theater down on canal street. And one of the things that we were always doing was looking for new plays. And in the midst of that, uh, you know, obviously I'd been aware of Leonard and I had worked as a director. I had worked under uh, Tom O'Horgan, who was, of course, major in the off off Broadway movement and in experimental theater movement. And at one point he said, you know, you should see what Leonard's up to. He's doing new pieces. And at that time, I was with a small theater, and we thought, gee, this would be great. And and that's when I first encountered Leonard, really as much at, at La Mama, uh, where I had done some stuff with Tom and then, and then with the Shade Company. And so that's when I first sort of came across him, or came across Leonard. And one of the things of working with Leonard, which culminated, I guess, in Faith, Hope, and Charity, I did a couple of plays of his uh, first productions. Uh, in Faith, Hope, and Charity, there were three – three playwrights from that movement, including including Terrence McNally and Leonard, and all of which was conceptually about really another group of outcast people uh, gathered around the uh, Polish statue in Central Park. And so it was this sort of very strange and wonderful, uh, I thought, off-Broadway production that we did. Um in addition, working with Leonard, we we also did. Uh, let me get the title right: Taxi Tales, which was a fantastic idea of Leonard, that he always thought was made into the TV show Taxi without his permission, and right. it was it was a great piece because it dealt with an average taxi driver dealing with average people who stop for taxis, and so it was another group, a really an ensemble piece. Of characters coming out of um, New York streets randomly, and then having uh, really wonderful encounters with different drivers and different uh, different groups of drivers and passengers.
1: Right. The uh, as I read about um, his the characters in his plays that were again social outcasts, but with mysterious secrets. Can you uh, share with us what some of those mysterious secrets were?
2: Well I mean among <laughs> uh, I guess that I can say anything among in the taxi yeah. driver in the taxi driver world, something that was pretty wonderful was that um, one of the drivers who was trying to always trying to make contact with his customers and kept failing at it and then going into the end of actually the end of the first part of the evening he opened up the trunk on this taxi and he had an inflatable doll there who <laughs> at 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 first you thought of course this was a sex object and it sort of was but then it turned out that he had the speech that that Leonard wrote for him wrote for this character was this really wonderful actually felt like a a heartfelt cry for for love from obviously, from an inflatable doll, which uh, was not responsive to him. But it was one of these moments where you suddenly had this, you're incredibly touched because you're aware of the kind of loneliness that the character had developed as a driver. And, and yet, of course, um, could never be fulfilled. And, and that was something that Leonard expressed. I mean, I'm part of it in, in his own life in seeking contact and wanting to be in direct communication with people. He was always reaching out. He was very, very friendly. He was touchy. He liked to touch people. He liked to feel human contact with people. And it was one of the wonderful things in that, in that tale of that, that, the character's name, I think, was Toddy, T-O-D-D-Y, who, who had the sex doll. And it was, and it was, anyway, it was a, it was a very, very touching thing.
1: Right. Did, did uh, most of his plays take place in New York City? Was there a. a- a certain location identified with his uh, plays.
2: I think so. I mean, I, I, from the ones, I mean, I, I read a very large number, and I think almost all of them were Manhattan plays. I mean, I think, I, I think almost all of them were set in in the city. I mean, immediately in the city, and and then very specific neighborhoods. So I remember. I think it was Times Times Square, wasn't it? Do you remember the play? His play Times Square. There was just a, a really wonderful sort of set underneath Times Square in the in the subway station uh, beneath Times Square, and all the different people passing through. Over uh,
1: what period of time did you collaborate with uh, Leonard? Uh, you know, like between what years?
2: It was sort of, I would say, seventies, eighties. 70s into the 80s I mean the the taxi Tale started because uh, having worked with Leonard before he he brought the play and he said maybe we could workshop it which I did a workshop with Leonard uh, at Circle in the Square theater and we did the workshop there and it went it was it was a very very good workshop clearly and a producer showed up uh, Joe Regan who said you know we can do this commercially. And then we he he we lifted it uh, and recast it somewhat and and went to uh, it's the, we went to the theater. It's on Forty Sixth Street. It was a, 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 a was a former nightclub that had been made into a theater, and uh, I think now actually it's underneath uh, the Scientology Center on Forty Sixth Street. I don't think it's being used for Lennon's plays anymore.
1: Right. The uh, <clears throat> it. Uh, it's indicated that perhaps his best known play was *Bird Bath*. Did you ever have any relationship with the play and directing that
2: at another I, venue? No, no, I didn't. I mean, I saw the play uh, and you know loved it. I mean, part of part of it for me working working with Leonard was that I mean Leonard's personality was in, inclusive and. Really, this thing I started trying to say before about wanting contact. I mean, mm-hmm. his, his, his wanting to feel connected with people was so important. And so the characters that he found, um, that he created were frequently people who had gotten lost within a society that was frankly moving faster than they were. And that he was, the characters are trying to catch up with the world around them and, and, you know so there really so often there was this potential for genuine um something that was genuinely moving
1: did he himself have difficulties making connections like your taxi driver uh for whatever reason
2: <laughs> that's funny I, I i you know because leonard was such an affable person that even even when he was having trouble with drink or with with other things he he was someone who was always fun to be around. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I liked him. I really liked Leonard as a person. I just, he was, he was engaging and he was creative and very crazy imaginative, which, which was exciting. I mean, genuinely exciting. So I, I don't know that I thought, I think ultimately I'm I would guess that inside of himself, there was a kind of loneliness that he was trying to figure out how to solve or how to fill. And so the reaching out that showed up as a theme in so much of his writing. I mean, I, I, you know, writers write about what they feel. And, uh, my, I, I would assume that that was well within him.
1: The, uh, <clears throat> the whole issue with his drinking was that something that was evident? Uh, yes.
2: Uh, it was. Yes. It was, it was the, I mean, he, he, beca- I, I mean, there were many times when, no, I wouldn't say many times. There were times when when I would see him and, or we would have a meeting or something, and I would be aware that he was he had had a few before right. the meeting. And so it was if the meetings were uh, offbeat, to say the least.
1: Right. You know, in uh, yeah. <clears> the <throat> description of him, he, he uh, stated that when he was growing up, uh, that his family cooked together, and while cooking, they drank together. Uh, his right. father was a was a bootlegger, and uh, right. his mother's father made wine in the cellar. And he he made the comment, "I, I guess I was sort of doomed, you know, from the <laughs> beginning."
2: Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm. That seems pretty pretty accurate, you know. The um, what other
1: plays uh, stand out to you that you collaborated with him in, either because of the the plotting i guess or the uh, the characters that are in the play
2: well you know i mean one of the funny things was that when he was invited for to do work on uh Oh, calcutta right that he did sketches in it was another place where he wound up um uh, i mean in the midst of what was essentially a very nude show uh he um i don't know how to describe it he created people who In the in the midst of exposing themselves physically, of course, exposed themselves emotionally much more than people wanted, and he actually brought, I thought, a kind of wonderful gravity to to old Calcutta in the midst of something that was, you know, it was essentially a a, not a spectacle, but this this movement towards trying to make have people naked on stage all the time, which of course came out of hair, right. So it was. It was. A, it was that strange thing. I know. The other thing is that in in Faith, Hope, and Charity that I did with uh, with Leonard, um, his piece in it had which, and I don't know if you remember the name Marilyn Sokol, but he 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 wrote he wrote a character for her that was again that this this somewhat wonderfully lost, very New York, very brassy person who who seemed to present everything was together and, of course, then gradually revealed the uh, lostness within her. And it was it was powerful.
1: Right. So it, really, his character development was really the major contribution, I guess, to the plays that people, again, maybe somewhat like himself that were, you know, searching for relationships, but had these, uh, and I love this part, that had these mysterious secrets. Right, um, were you ever associated with uh, La Mama uh, Theater Club?
2: I only in terms of uh, that I, I this is sort of funny, but when I was in, in the midst of finishing education, um, I participated in a uh, I don't know what it was called a seminar. I think it was called, but it was like a new theater workshop with Tom O'Horgan, uh, during which I got to know Tom well. As a result of which, uh, I got to know Ellen Stewart. Uh, somewhat. And and then she had me down at La Mama to do some stuff and, and doing a little bit of directing and a little bit of, well, assisting Tom, which was great. And so, I, in a sense, grew up within that world. I mean, developed as a director and, and learned a lot about working with music with Tom, because because Tom O'Horgan was a really wonderful, wonderful musician. And as a director, I thought, and it was something he brought to La Mama, that was extraordinary because he brought a level of musicianship to the playwriting that really, it asked for a kind of musicality, not literally using instruments, but using language as music. And it's something that I've always felt very close to. And it's something I think, I mean, having done some work with Tom and at La MaMa, I think it's a part of what, I, what I've been doing as a director going more into opera um, than theater is is constantly finding you know where the music speaks in its own unique way and it's something that um i think that you know with leonard i mean certainly with taxi tales we did something insane which he liked which was we used an, an intermezzo from um uh, in the midst of this sex act with an inflatable doll <laughs> because the music expressed such longing and that, that Leonard just loved that the music itself, from while from a very different world, actually wound up communicating a kind of depth inside of the character that he was going for and that the character, the actor was going for. So it was pretty, it was, uh, I'm just rambling here. It was just, I no, mean, no, it was a very. No, there's, there's, this is good stuff. Go ahead. ramble. Ramble. But, but, Ramble, but it was that, it was that wonderful. This is part of what was maybe what Leonard was sort of as a writer, because he was creating characters that were off the wall. He really gave you sort of permission to try things like that, where you take, I mean, Cavalleria kind of, you know, triumphant Italian opera with this extraordinary interlude and to use that as support for this moment when the inflatable doll is not fulfilling someone uh was something when we first tried it in rehearsal i remember Len- leonard was just like i mean he was just screaming because it was so much fun and it and it it, it let it, it express something which is what mattered right anyway, the um actually actually you may maybe be interested people would be interested in this because the actor who played that role is named ken olin o-l-i-n uh, who became a TV uh, star on 30 something, and then and then also has become a TV producer and director, right? Anyway, uh, anyway, so yeah,
1: I was just going to say La Mama is is still in operation today, almost sixty years after it was established. Uh, besides La Mama, are there other uh, experimental theater clubs in New York? A lot of our listeners are. Uh, from uh, or living in New York City, wh- where might they go to see some of the, the well, you know, new York experiments?
2: I mean, I you know the, well, obviously the Public Theater is still doing a lot. I mean, the Shakespeare Festival, New York Public Theater, the Joe Papp Theater, what was Joe Joe's mm-hmm. place, and and of course New York Theater Workshop, which is down in that neighborhood, is is doing amazing work in terms of new pieces and also new ways of looking at, at uh, classic pieces or, and in more more standard plays And I think that's I think New York theater Workshop is to my ear is one of the best. I, I, I also very much like the Barrow group as a, as a theater producing organization that's doing very interesting new pieces. And I love St Anne's warehouse because of the the range of work that's happening there, which is you know in Brooklyn. And that's right. uh, re- really a terrific range of work.
1: Let me uh, ask you this. You uh, teach Shakespeare at both the <laughs> Circle and the Square <laughs> Theater, right? Oh, what, yes. H- how did you make that leap, I guess? Or maybe it isn't. I don't know. From experimental <laughs> theater to the Shakespeare. Or maybe they're one and the same. You tell us.
2: Well, I I, I mean, you know, in, in growing up, in, I grew up in the New York area. And as a child was taken to a lot of Shakespeare. When I got mm. to college, one of my favorite classes ever, really ever, was a full year in which we read almost all of Shakespeare's plays a week at a time. And, um, it was a, it was a very, uh, challenging and, uh, pretty exciting class. And it tickled my interest in Shakespeare right then, right in college. And then and then going through graduate school and then postgraduate, I kept working on Shakespeare. And at one point, I thought, well, this is what I'm going to be doing. And that in terms of theater, among the first things that I ever did commercially was directing for the New York Shakespeare Festival. Joe Papp hired me to direct at Lincoln Center. And I did a bunch of productions when Joe had Lincoln Center of of Macbeth and Midsummer Night's Dream and uh, The Tempest and then Pericles and so I, I got very involved in directing Shakespeare first and in the midst of that I was also I also got to know Tom and Tom O'Horgan and the people downtown so I had this sort of split uh, not exactly split personality but I think you know a, a, a real commitment in terms of the the performing of Shakespeare and teaching and directing Shakespeare balanced with working on completely new uh, material, and sometimes I—I I don't know if I went the right way. I mean, <laughs> I, should, I should have gone more in one direction or the other, but you know, so it goes.
1: And, and it was your parents who introduced you to Shakespeare.
2: Well, we we yes, growing up, I mean, we would drive; they would drive us to like the the Stratford Theater in Connecticut, the Shakespeare Theater in Stratford, Connecticut, and to go to see all sorts of shakespeare i mean i can remember going to see like cheryl richard and morris karnofsky and just you know a pretty and Catherine hepburn was in 12th land i think i mean and mickey rooney not mickey rooney so anyway i don't remember but but um you know a pretty wide range of stuff and i think you know they sort of tickled something in me so
1: what were your parents background in that law law lawyers. The law yep <laughs> <laughs> Well it there you go. Sense. That <laughs> That's that covers, you, know, you, this, have, you know, just you just have just have to connect I mean, the dots.
2: Well, and and you know, it's like they're they're thinkers and so getting involved in Shakespeare and music also. I mean, I shouldn't because they also insisted on going to opera and, and concerts, so right? It was, what I think of what I think of now as a sort of normal upbringing included a great deal of uh, culture so
1: the um, in the few minutes that we have left can you tell us about any um, other projects that maybe you're working on now or that perhaps uh, listeners might be able to attend
2: uh, some of your plays one, well one, one thing in terms of theater one thing that was brought to me actually a couple of years ago is a piece about Mahler, Gustav Mahler who had, I thought, a f- very important connection to Freud. And uh, a, someone, a, a woman, Gay Wally, wrote a play about their encounter and about Gustav Mahler's trying to work out how to finish his final symphony. And so what she's done is to construct a play dealing with historic characters, but in balance with a modern dinner party and trying to sort out the sort of social issues that lead to creating art, and I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting uh, piece. I mean, I, I, you know, it's like I have no idea. We're scheduled, we're planning it as an off-Broadway event in the fall, but um, who knows what? You know, it's one of these things that you keep working on. You think it's going to come to fruition soon, and then you wait a little longer, and you see where it's going to go. But I think it's a very interesting. It's like trying to find this marriage between language. And music and creativity, and so it's trying. The play works at exploring, you know, what is it that connects all of these, and hopefully leads to something interesting.
1: And this was inspired so, by Freud's work.
2: It's it's an actual encounter between Mahler and Freud, where Mahler went to see Freud in Vienna, obviously, and to talk about his own uh, uh, complex marriage.
1: right Um, you know one of the things we're going to do right at the end of our uh, uh, interview is we're going to play uh, about a one minute or so piece uh, audio piece of Leonard Melfi being interviewed one of his interviews on uh, television and uh, of course we're just going to listen to the audio part about what brought him to New York City as you know Uh, He was from Binghamton, uh, New York, you know, upstate a couple hours, been through Binghamton many times myself. And when they found out that he had been buried on Hard Island, when his family realized that they were able to remove and and, and bring his remains to Binghamton, which is where he Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, shocking that somebody could end up in a mass grave because of a mistake uh next time you go to a hospital you just have to uh, you know, pay attention to
2: to all, to all the moving parts there um, actually when when you when we first talked about this I I became and I, I started in reading your book I mean I started becoming curious and interested about how many people got invo- were buried there right. and how many of them might be mistaken and how this all you know it's a it's a wonderful piece of history I think
1: right. Well, thank you for that, and uh, also I, I just can't thank you enough for uh, spending some time with us. Uh, conversation what you told us was just absolutely fascinating, and and I'm glad. Uh, and I thought this was a good vehicle to explore Leonard Melfi a little bit and to make him uh, more
2: accessible, <laughs> I guess, uh, to other people. Yeah, and, well, I, I certainly hope so, and and his plays. His characters are used so often, his writing is used so often in studying acting. I mean, because the, the character work necessary to bring them to life is really is, educa- is incredibly educational for young actors because they, they, they don't behave in ways that are conventional. And so actors, young actors who are learning Really, really need to explore. Well, what does it mean that someone does this or says this suddenly, and how do you shape that into a whole character? And so, his—I think—I mean, I think his his plays and his his people uh, will continue because because they're they're just such they're, they are such interesting people,
1: right? And and so are you, Mister Berkeley. And thank you very much for being a guest on Talking Heart Island. Thank you.
2: Great, and thanks for asking me. Where were you born? And I was born in Binghamton, New York, uh-huh. upstate, and uh, I was born and raised there, and, and then I came to New
1: York, and I've been here for 35 years. Uh-huh. Uh huh.
2: What uh, prompted you to start writing plays?
1: Well, I, I came to New York to be an actor, and while I was in class at Uta Hoggins and Herbert
2: Burgos, I uh, Uh, started writing scenes for me to do and for the other kids to do. And uh, and I got very turned on watching the other actors do scenes that I wrote. And uh, I decided, God, that's very gratifying. I'm going to go home and write plays. And that's what I did.
0: Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, Simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island.